Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. How do I want to age? What does the rest of my life look like? Those are questions I know many of you have given a lot of thought. Well, my guest today has some answers. Dr. Sharon Blackie is a psychologist and folklorist who is passionate about reimagining the aging process for the better. Her last book, If Women Rose Rooted, was an eco-feminist sleeper hit about finding your place in the world that was passed from woman to woman with the words, you must read this. Her new book, Haggitude, Reimagining the Second Half of Life, does just that. What? she asks, would ageing as a woman in the West be like if we embraced it? Physical changes go hand in hand with psychological changes and I really wanted to highlight to people that these are opportunities, you know, for more transformation, for more growth, for some really good stuff rather than what the culture tells us about it, you know, that it's supposed to usher in a time of decline. At its heart is the radical idea. What if older women knew how to use the power and influence that many of us don't know we have? What if we recognised our value? What if, brace yourself, we wrote our own narratives? Sharon joined me to talk about the power of myth, embracing your inner hag, and why she'd rather be the old woman in the wood than a boring old fairy tale princess any day. Do you know, I used to have redder hair, but since I lost all my hair with lymphoma treatment last year and it's grown mm. back kind of like faded and curly and moppish, so I don't really know what it is anymore, but yeah, <laughs> I used to be redder. Yeah, I've definitely found the fading thing very strange. Yeah, it's interesting. Women women who have reddish hair do find that it fades in a much different way from people with other colours. Yeah, I had visions of having that kind of, you know, long sweeping grey. Yeah, me too. Not happening. No, Not happening. <laughs> no. Well, I didn't have any grey until I lost my hair and then it came back a little bit grey so I'm kind of blending into this fake wolf skin thing behind me as I speak. Yeah it looks very (laughs) cosy. 
Oh, well, thank you very much for coming on The Shift, Sharon. Thank you. It's lovely to meet you. Before we get on to the book, you are a psychologist and a folklorist, aren't you? I'd say probably more mythology than folklore, although I did, I did do a folklore dissertation in my master's degree. So, yeah, it would, um, I would be specialising, I've studied Greek mythology, Celtic mythology, um, and all the kind of Jungian ways of looking at mythology, you know. So. Can you use it all in the book? How did that combination, mythology and psychology come about because it seems like quite an unusual one stories always captured my my imagination and as a kid I always felt they somehow helped me reimagine myself and so when I was doing therapy and found a lot of the you know the classic ways of doing therapy CBT and all of that kind of malarkey just you know they can work for people but they're not very exciting and people give them up very easily and the whole idea of stories capturing your imagination just seemed to me like a really, really good way of, of, of creating change where otherwise it would be very difficult. So it kind of came through a kind of narrative psychology practice, really, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. So were you a one of those like bookie kids who lost themselves in stories? Oh, yeah. I had a, I had a, I had a challenging childhood, as many of us do. And um, yeah, at first it was my escape, but then it became more than an escape. I think it became very functional and very much about being able to envisage transformation and, and a way out of any situation that was a bit crap. So, um, yeah, I think stories have huge, huge power. So tell me a bit about those kind of those early influences from your childhood, those stories, but what about family? I think early on in the book you talk about the influence of the women in the North East. Yeah, um, my mother divorced my father when I was about two. And while she went out to work, I was left with my very elderly great aunt, Aunt Meg. She reminded me, I suppose a lot of your listeners won't um, know who he is, but she reminded me of the characters that Les Dawson, the old comedian, used to dress up as, you know, very Mm, buxom, kind of hairnets and rollers and the lot. And um, a foul mouth, absolutely foul mouth. But she and women like her were, were really the kind of glue that held the community together in lots of ways. You know, everybody thought it was the men that had power, but they were the, they were the kind of the moral guiding forces of the community. They told everybody, you know, what they should be doing, what they shouldn't be doing, and they were listened to. So it was interesting times. I remember that whole Les Dawson, Dick Emery thing of like, those old women they dressed up as and then propped their chests on the garden fence. And it's... <laughs> that's right. But that's what Aunt Meg looked like when she was like that. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's a strange thing, isn't it? Because those jokes were not about, they were not about acknowledging the power and the importance no. of those women. They were about ripping the piss out of them, which yeah. is so often the case for, you know, the way middle-aged and older women are talked about. Yeah, indeed, uh, which is a pity, really. But that's kind of the premise of the book, in a sense, that that powerful aspect of, of women, and particularly older women, has, has just faded. Um, and all we are now are kind of figures of fun or, or to be ignored. So tell me, tell me about Haggitude. Tell me about what it is, where the idea came from. Bring it to life for me. I began to write Haggitude when I was myself kind of on the threshold of elderhood, which I've always thought, for no particularly good reason, randomly selected would be around the age of 60. And I'd written my first non-fiction book, If Women Rose Rooted, when I was about 53. And it was very much about women's journey through life and kind of, you know, positioning it as a a journey to a sense of real belonging to the world. And at the end of that book, I talked about the fact that I believed that elderhood was another journey. You know, it was the beginning of a new journey. 
uh, that that uh, that that came on uh, post menopause. But I I was really only a couple of years into menopause at the time, and I didn't feel that I had the skills or the knowledge to write it. So I began to write Haggitude as a kind of follow up to that, and it really did come from a real passion for transformation. That that really is my my credo, I think, in everything that I do, that we never, ever stop growing, we never stop transforming, that we are supposed to keep changing and kind of reinventing ourselves. And I saw the, the very profound physical changes that happen to women, you know, puberty, motherhood, if we have it, pregnancy, if we have it, uh, and then menopause, you know, comes around again as a real kind of physical shattering conflagration, just when we think we're getting over it all. And these physical changes go hand in hand with psychological changes. And I really wanted to highlight to people that these are opportunities, you know, for more transformation, for more growth, for some really good stuff, rather than what the culture tells us about it, you know, that it's supposed to usher in a time of decline. I mean, menopause was the one thing that didn't get talked about. It was the one thing that you're not nurtured through, if you like. I mean, why do you think that is? I think we just live in a very ageist society you know and I think that women particularly for for forever probably have been written off as not useful once they stop being fertile that I think our value has always been um, pitched as our fertility and when that's done then you know what use are we and of course in older societies and in indigenous societies today there is a, a great use for elder women they are the ones who have the wisdom they are the ones who can carry moral authority for the tribe and we see that very much in our kind of European myth and, and folklore. So I think that is is really where it stemmed from, just that simple patriarchal perspective on on what it is to be a woman. And I do not think that it should stop there. I think there is a huge journey and a huge um, adventure and also a huge utility that elder women have for a society which is profoundly troubled, let's face it. Mm, yeah, and the yeah, same of the year. But when did that start? I mean, the kind of dismissal, if you like, of contemporary ageing women. When did youth start being lionised? Maybe about the 60s. What's your understanding of when the woman over 40 began to be dismissed? Or has it been a forever thing? I think centuries, really. You know, Victorian women also were were written off, uh, for sure, uh, when they were older. Uh, But I think it started way back when Christianity started to appear in these islands. Because if you look at all of the old stories, the pre-Christian stories, you see grand mothers, you see old women creating and shaping the world. You know, everything from the fates in Greek mythology, who were three old women Mm. who literally kept the entire cosmos in balance, to a wonderful figure called the Kaliach in Irish and Scottish uh, mythology who created and shaped the land. So we had these old women who were basically running the show. And then the Christian culture came in, which of course was very much more patriarchal and had no room uh, for women of any kind, but particularly not old women. And I think we can see that continuing as well through the medieval period and particularly the period of the witch trials where, you know, old women particularly who did not have husbands and families around them, who were alone, were kind of seen to be on the fringes of the structures that kept that society going. Nobody quite knew what to do with them. And so it was a little bit frightening. And if they weren't within the structures of the church and society, then they were probably going to be challenging them. And I think all of that, you know, became compounded over the centuries that we got in in the mess that we are now. 
it strikes me listening to you and having you know, read Haggitude, it strikes me that older women have or could have and did have power that was frightening and had to be suppressed. I mean, that definitely seems like the situation with the the witch trials. I guess. I think there is a sense in which perhaps when one gets older, in a sense, you have less to lose. You know, you don't have skin in the mating game anymore. Yeah. So you're not trying to be attractive. You're not trying to please. And I think there is something again in that menopausal physical shift that pushes us towards a kind of truth telling, you know, not just blurting out rude stuff for the sake of, yeah. of having a voice, but but to call out things that you know perfectly well are not going to go well in the culture or or the village or whatever. And I'm sure that that was seen as rather threatening. You know, they, they, those guys didn't like outspoken people. They liked everybody to toe the line. Tell me um, a bit, if you can, about your own experience of menopause. What were your symptoms like? It was a little bit different for me than for many women because I had been taking the pill for years uh, for endometriosis. And I'd always said to my doctor, I'm going to come off it at 50 no matter what, because, uh, you know, the risks really go up uh once you're past 50. So I came off it and I guess a little bit of menopause had probably been happening in the background. So I didn't have really awful physical symptoms. I had hot flushes and still do, which were fairly uh, radical. Oh God, still? How long is that? Mm, 11 years, but I mean, they're not nearly as bad as they were back in the day. But for me, the, the psychological stuff was quite interesting. So I had what almost all women seem to have. I had the rage. Um, I do think of it as righteous wrath rather than just kind of like, you know, being cross for the sake of it. Mm. I had a lot of that. I love the Furies in Greek mythology. You know, they were made for menopausal women, uh, righteous anger. Um, But really, what I experienced during menopause, and I'm very much aware that a lot of women don't and have a harder time, I didn't experience any of the brain fog that some women talk about. I experienced absolute clarity for the first time in my life. It was if somebody had ripped a veil away, all that hormonal stuff, you know, had Mm. gone. And all of a sudden, I could just see in a much more focused way what I wanted to be, what I needed to do, um, and what mattered to me. And that was really... That was really very powerful. So although it was uncomfortable in some ways, I did actually find it quite a gift and quite transformational. So many of the women I've spoken to have at some point between early, mid 40s and 60 chucked a lot of stuff out and in some cases actually set light, you know, Mm. to large parts of their lives. Do you think that that transformation, that kind of Is individuation the right way to put it? That kind of, right, I'm going to deal with this, that comes, for some women, completely out of nowhere. Do you think that's part of the perimenopausal process? I do. I think it's an absolute and probably very necessary bonfire of the vanities. I mean, I think really that's what the process is for. And one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about talking about it is I don't think the culture sees it that way. I think even now that we're having lots of conversations about menopause that we never had before, so many of them seem to be in the context of clinging on crazily to everything that you don't want to let go of. Whereas for me, the whole process of menopause is about teaching us to let go. And that letting go is a process that's very difficult and requires some grieving. But I think of menopause in the context of alchemy, you know, that in the old alchemical tradition and the psychological tradition that kind of derives from it, 
Alchemy is about a process called calcination, which is burning down to the bone. So everything that is unnecessary is stripped away. Your whole past story is stripped away. And what you are left with in the crucible of alchemy is the absolute essence of what that substance is. So in our case, the essence of what you are. So when everything that you once held dear has been stripped away, what's left? And that to me is the journey, the interesting part through the second half of life. It's a process of profound discovery about who we are and what gifts we bring to the world. And that's quite exciting, I think, if we can only learn to see it that way rather than as a you know, really uncomfortable process that is only really intended ever to usher in a time of decline. I think that's the trouble, isn't it? Like you say, despite the, you know, the fact that we are having conversations now that we weren't having even two, certainly three, four, five years ago, there still is, I think, a slight sense. I mean, I still have people, not many, but I do still have people messaging me on social media saying, can you just stop talking about it? It's scaring me. It's like, what? Why is it scary? You know, it's coming regardless. It might be bad. It might not be bad for a while. You might not even notice. You might be lucky, you know. But why are we afraid of change? I think because it really is presented as a time of decline. You know, you go through menopause and then you hang around waiting to die and uh, nobody looks at you, you become invisible, you become unheard, you have no voice, uh, you, you just become kind of irrelevant. And that is a little bit frightening for people who've grown up in a culture that only really values youthful beauty. Again, you know, really, that's what I was trying to do in the book is to present stories of elder women, midlife women and elder women in European myth and folklore to show that there are so many different ways of being an interesting elder, you know, depending on your own particular proclivities and, and gifts and what have you. We have all kinds of different old women. We have tricksters, we have truth tellers, we have fairy godmothers and mentors. We have women who literally weave the world into being. We have all kinds of lovely stuff out there. And I think that, you know, none of us think that we're going to wake up one morning and become a fate or something. Yeah. But nevertheless, they do they do have these archetypal qualities, those stories, which tell us that there are certain ways of being in the world. And what I try to do in the book is to kind of um, moderate the, the myth and the fairy tale with examples of, of real life women who fulfill those roles as well. So I think if we can only insert into this really negative cultural discourse the idea that there might be some really kind of slightly magical things to look forward to, then people perhaps won't fear it quite as much. I think one of the things that you said in the book, which I absolutely loved, which is when you were a child and you read fairy tales and folk tales, you always identified or wanted to be much more the kind of old woman in the woods than than the princess waiting to be saved, you know, by the hero. Yeah, and I, you know, I hear a lot of younger women really looking desperately for interesting old women stories. Mm. And I think it's because they want some hope that there is something longer term to grow into. But yeah, you know, I grew up on a really, really impoverished northeastern council estate. Uh, you know, there was no way that I was going to relate to princesses. Uh, <laughs> but the old women, uh, and perhaps it was because of those strange um, old women that I grew up with, the old women who kind of knew the world and knew what was required for the hero and the heroine to transform. Maybe I was just kind of like, you know, already a psychologist. I saw them as kind of elder psychologists or something, and that's what I wanted to become. Uh, but yeah, I found that very, very much more exciting than the, the pretty princesses. Those characters, whilst they are usually evil or in some way a facilitator or they're never the subject, 
they are, and I say this now from a point of view of 56, they are much more interesting. They're not the kind of one-dimensional. They're not straightforward characters. And I think maybe as well, that's why society has a problem with you when you're older, because they don't really know what books to put you in anymore. Indeed. I mean, if you look at I mean, one of my favourite characters is Baba Yaga, you know, from the Russian mm. folklore, who... Um, who normally is approached in her house on chicken legs in the woods by someone looking for fire or a gift from her. But she tests them and she tests them to the point of death. You know, if you don't pass her tests, then you might get burnt in her man-sized oven and eaten up. And, you know, it is easy to see a character like that as evil and the wicked witch. But what mm. those stories to me are trying to convey to us is that all of the best transformations come about at great risk. And it's a little bit of pain and possibly some grief. And you have to work hard for it. And, you know, in most of the stories, they don't get eaten. They do work hard. They they find their way through. But this idea of Baba Yaga as the great kind of cosmic initiator into a new phase of life, I think is a really great one. I'd love to be Baba Yaga. I don't really care about Vasilisa, the little girl who comes to her looking for, you know, for fire to carry home. That seems to me to matter as a role to test sometimes. And there are many, many other examples, you know, that I give in the book about similar kinds of old women who know they're not the protagonist in the stories, but they are the ones who kind of pull the strings and who know how all the machinery of the world works and what's required at a particular time to keep it in balance. It seems like old women are allowed to play that part outside of the West more, but it's almost like that has been eliminated in contemporary culture. It's like it's been cut out completely and older. I'm not saying men never experience ageism because of course they do, but um, older men are allowed to have gravitas. You know, they're allowed to run countries at nearly 80, you know, all of that kind of thing. Whereas, you know, when, for instance, the last American election, and now I'm not going to be able to remember her name. Elizabeth um, Warren. Yes. You know, she was derided as, as an old bag. And, you know, I remember hearing an interview with people where they basically said they couldn't stand her voice because she had such an old woman voice. And she's 20 years younger than Biden, nearly. <laughs> it's insane. Yeah. And I can't even remember where I was going with this now, just moaning. <laughs> but it almost it almost feels like that role has been removed in the West. I was reading the book and I can't work out why, but like you say, it probably goes back centuries and... You know, it's a question, I suppose, of how we go about reclaiming it, but not reclaiming it in a way that fits with some old societal message, but in our own way. Indeed. You know, to me, the point of these old stories is not to try to create a world that was, you know, functional 500 or 1,000 years ago. Yes, but some to... dreadful feudal society. Exactly. I mean, that would be foolish, but that's not really what those stories were for. I mean, they, you know, they clothe the stories in what makes sense at the time, but the, the meaning of the stories, the imagery of the stories, the archetypal characters of the stories can very, very easily be imported into, you know, into our world today and made relevant for our world today. That is the whole point of archetypes. They are universal. And it's just that they wear different clothes in the 21st century than they would have done in the 16th century. But the, the meaning of the stories is still there. Having read about a bazillion books that tackle menopause in different ways or refer to it, I think you're really good at addressing subjects that quite often don't get touched upon much. So one of the things that really interested me was when you refer to whether the ageing process is different for women who haven't had children. Mm -hmm. And I touched on that in the shift, but it's I very, very rarely seen that thinking about how do you think that ageing does differ for an older woman who hasn't had children? 
I think the most obvious thing is that you have no one to look after you. You know,、mm. you don't have family to kind of ease your your journey into the more difficult aspects of elderhood. But I think more interestingly, perhaps for a number of women that I've spoken to who don't have children, there is that sense of no one to pass a legacy of you know wisdom, let's call it, onto. And that's one of the reasons why I liked the fairy godmother archetype, you know, in the old folk tales, because if you can't be a grand Mother, you can always be a fairy godmother. There is still that possibility of mentoring、uh, that happens, and I think for the women that I have spoken to who are serious about, you know, the journey through elderhood and who don't have children, it doesn't hold them back. It, it is a sense, perhaps, that what you have to give becomes more spread out. Into the community rather than just to you know two or three children that you're particularly close to, but there is still a very strong sense of legacy and leaving a legacy and doing something useful. I think what I found curious, and I do mention that I think briefly in the book, you know, when you've grown up, for many of us, not for all of us, but when you've grown up without having children, you never quite see yourself clearly as a mother. So you run the risk of always remaining a daughter and never quite feeling grown up. Do you know?、Mm, and I had that、I、for many,、yeah. many years. That I just didn't feel that I had the authority for that. But I think there is a point in elderhood where that could be an advantage because if you think about it, all of the elder women in those folk tales and those myths—they're not defined by their family and the kids. We don't know whether most of them have family and kids. It's about them. And I think elderhood is very much about you know turning inwards and then outwards again, bringing your own gift out to the world rather than being defined by these relationships. So I wonder if, particularly as we grow older, and I'm only six. One, there's a lot of elderhood left to do. Hopefully,、um, you know wh- whether that will actually prove to be an advantage. You're almost kind of like returning to the kind of maiden archetype again as you as you grow older, if that makes sense. Up. What was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. Blue Nile. com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save fifty percent on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
That's a really interesting notion because the point you were making about kind of being like a permanent daughter mm. and feeling like you don't have the authority, I think there's also a sense that does definitely come from within, but it also comes from without. There's a kind of ongoing sense that you are somehow selfish if you haven't had children, that you're that you're not a grown-up, actually, that you're not part of this grown-up world, yeah. that you, do, you know, that you are, I don't know. Lacking, you know, yeah, it, it is interesting. And of course, there is a difference, obviously. Well, there's not much of a difference necessarily between women who actively choose not to have children and women who would have loved to have children mm. but can't. But it is interesting. So a friend was telling me who has worked with someone who grew up in the African traditions and particularly the San traditions, what we used to call the Bushmen traditions, that women in their elder years, post-menopause, who hadn't had children were believed to have kind of special powers or special insight into the world. And I don't know any more than that about, you know, about those traditions. I'm trying desperately to follow it up because it really interests me. But that, you know, again, gives me some consolation that outside of our completely buggered up Western culture, there were more (laughs) um, lucid ways of looking at at women in older age. I mean, there's a quote that absolutely leapt out at me and I only wrote half of it down typically because I was frantically taking notes on my iPhone. But this Nursula K. Le Guin quote Um, And the bit that I wrote down was that she was pregnant with herself at last. Uh, I absolutely love that sense of, I mean, we talked about the kind of bonfire of the vanities, but I love that sense of, I don't know, I want to say becoming selfish, but that would be wrong. That wouldn't be what I mean. I think it's like pleasing yourself more, listening to your own instincts more, trying to learn to stop saying yes when you mean no, for instance. You know, all of those, I don't know. It's not being defined by what the culture thinks you should be, I Mm. think, isn't it, perhaps? Yeah, and again, this is probably different for women who are in their 50s and still have children around. I remember reading uh, an interview with someone where she said, perimenopause, she went from, oh, no, you've lost your keys. Let's look. Where are they? You know, pulling the whole house apart, lifting up the sofa cushions, everything. So you've lost your keys. Well, what do you expect me to do about it? Right. And for her, that was indicative of a shift, which is not to say you become, like I said, selfish, but you just become a bit less, I don't have to fix everything. Yeah, you don't have to fix everything and you don't have to be who other people want you to be. And it is very much a time for finding out, you know, who, who you are in a more authentic way when you're not being defined by your relationship to other people and the particular roles that you have adopted up up until now. And that's not to say that you stop being a mother, for example, mm, but it's God. that that doesn't define you anymore. And one of the archetypes that I talk about in the book is an archetype called the medial woman, which is a phrase, a, a term that was coined by a woman called Tony Wolfe, who was Carl Jung's student and lover as it went and um, she identified what she thought were four major female archetypes and three of them were defined by their relationships to other people so there was the mother there was the the hetero which is a kind of muse character you know who is a muse to a man I guess there was the Mm. amazon who is defined again by you know as a warrior woman standing up in the same context as men stand up and then there's the medial woman and the medial woman is not defined by anybody else she is the woman who is 
turning inwards to find the source of her own wisdom and bringing that back out. And I love that character, that archetype, very, very deeply for that reason. I mean, I imagine there will be people listening to this who will think, well, I love the sound of all of this, but where do I start? How do I go about changing the way I feel about ageing? You know, I'm not creative. I haven't got time. What do I do? I think it has to start with a desire to do it in a way that is joyful and meaningful. And if you haven't got that, my book is probably not the place to start <laughs> and I'm not the person to advise. So I think there would be there would need to be a desire to make it more meaningful and joyful. I think there would be a willingness to look at the difficulties of menopause as opportunities. No pain without gain is a terrible cliche, but really, you know, that is what the world is often, so often telling us. And as far as it is possible to rub up against this cultural requirement that we just carry on being everything to every Everybody, we just don't stop. We just keep on going. Because I really do see menopause as a time between stories, you know, when that old story has slipped away of necessity because you're getting older, but the new story hasn't started yet. And a time between stories is, is a space. Um, it's not a space that you rush to fill with things. It's a space where you wait and see what emerges. And we're not really taught to do that or we're not allowed we're not given time to do that in our culture so i would say that it's an orientation that that allows you to live with uncertainty for a little while which the culture does so badly and kind of sit with the process see what happens and look look for clues about what really inspires you you know in these stories that i'm offering in other stories in other characters that you think oh i wish i could become something like that? What are my gifts to, you know, to think about? And I don't mean skills, I mean gifts, you know, who are you? What, what, what is your unique gift that you bring to a very challenged world at this time? And I think if we can just orient ourselves to entering menopause in that way, it, it really does all fall out in, in the wash. It happens, the magic happens, um, without you really trying very hard. I definitely agree. I definitely feel markedly different at 56 than I did at 46. But one of the things that strikes me every time I talk about this really is how much of it is about unlearning so many things that we've learnt. You know, like you touched on rage earlier and, you know, rage is judged in women. I think actually you use a statistic that I also used from um, Soraya Chameli's book, mm -hmm. Um, yeah. about the way that angry girls are judged even by small children versus angry boys. And I think, you know, we're taught to put out fires, as you put it, to not be angry, to be a good girl, to not be selfish. Um, and then as we get older, we're taught that busy is good, you know, doing is good, achieving is good. And so this period of time is all about unpicking all of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think menopause is a, is a fire. It really is that alchemical fire that, that burns through all of those barriers. And, and it's not a, a choice thing. You know, I don't think any of us chooses to become angry in <laughs> menopause. Mm -hmm. It's not just like, you know, the fact that the societal pressures have built up over 40, 50 years or whatever it may be. And now they're bursting. I think it is just women just get tired women just get tired. And while all this great physical stuff is happening, the, the barriers are just broken down. And, and the rage that we probably should have been expressing for uh, many, many years just, just comes out. But I do think of it, you know, uh, rage, is, rage has different faces and just kind of lashing out anger, which is kind of natural again after being, having it pent up for, for decades, yeah. isn't the best way to do it. But if you can kind of use your rage 
And it does then become what I call righteous wrath, you know, that you, you, you channel that rage into something that actually matters and that is that something that is going to be constructive. Then again, you're kind of harnessing this this thing that is going to come and happen to you, whether you choose it or not. Yes, I don't know about you, but for me, that kind of uncontrollable anger was really something very much in the, the worst perimenopausal years. And that as that passed, it became much more yeah, as you put it, righteous, more productive. Very much more productive, yeah. But at first, I don't know that I even really necessarily knew at the time what was happening, mm. but oh, I, I just wasn't know. taking any crap anymore, you know? <laughs> yeah. Particularly, particularly, I guess, from men, because we've all taken enough over the years by the time we get to, the, to that age. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a thing for sure. One of the things about your own personal experience is you got very much more in touch with nature, didn't you? And that's what your previous book, Women Rose Rooted, is is really about. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, about why you think women, I don't want to say go back to nature, but I can't think of a different way to put it. I think in all of the old stories from these islands, you know, from Britain and Ireland, the old pre-Christian stories, the proper myths, women, divine females, goddesses, not gods, um, were always associated with the land and with the forces of nature. Not in a purely physical way, but in the sense that they were conceived of as understanding what was required to keep the world in balance and how the contract between people and the land, the natural world, could be maintained so that we don't take too much, we don't take more than we need and everything just chugs along nicely. And when I came across that old mythology in a very much deeper way than I had when I was a child, I was in America at the time and trying to break out of a corporate existence and kind of, you know, reinvent myself on my third midlife crisis at that point. And I felt a very strong sense in America that my literally my feet were in the wrong place. This wasn't my place. I didn't belong here. And it felt really imperative to come back to the countries that were part of my ancestry that had, in a sense, made me. And so those two things, I guess, really, you know, that really strong sense of wrongness about the place that I was in. It wasn't mine. I didn't belong here. Combined with discovering that women in our oldest mythologies, you know, had had that deep association, not just with the land, but with animals, you know, shapeshifters galore. They would as easily become a crow as they would take on human form because it's a different kind of wisdom. And that really struck a chord with me that had been there all my life, that I've always related very, very much more to, you know, to, to wilder places or places where there is silence. And I guess it really started from there. And that's why I began to, to write of Women Rose Rooted, to say in a world that is so profoundly environmentally challenged, in the old stories, it was women who knew what to do about it, if I can put it very, very simplistically. So as women, I think we have a particular attunement. It's not that men don't, of course they do, but maybe a different kind of attunement to to the natural world and that we should make use of it. One of the uh, women that you speak to in the book talks about feeling a need at this stage in her life to cultivate her weirdness, which I absolutely loved. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, that was Martine, who is um, who is Dutch and has a lovely, lovely turn of phrase for that. And her, she was a, she was a doctor. She was trained as a doctor, and just as I was trained in a very, very scientific background when I first studied psychology and then became a neuroscientist. You know, you are taught that that only the physical is important. When I was a student of psychology in a very scientific environment, we couldn't even say the word mind 
in classes because she couldn't see a mind. A brain was okay because you could see it and you could probably cut it open. But a mind, just like, well, you know, what's your evidence that there's a mind? It was insane. And so, I mean, that was extreme. But nevertheless, when you grow grow up in this world, it tells you that imagination is something to be cut off as a, once you grow out of childhood, once you grow up, you know, you don't, you're not allowed to imagine anymore. Then you kind of buy into that. And Martine uh, my friend, just as, as I did, found that as she became older, her, it was happening to her anyway, that kind of strange basket full of longings for for something that has a bit more meaning, something that has a bit more mystery, something that has a bit more life to it, just kind of came whether she wanted it or not. And it was a long time for her, a long period for her, just as it was for me, to grow into being able to express that without feeling really weird in the world that, you know, in the medical world that, that she was in. And I think that is a challenge for, for many of us, you know, where the um, the imagination, the kind of mystery, the mystic sometimes side of life is, is just not taken seriously in an uber-rationalistic culture. No, and it's increasingly not valued. Yes, but I do think that that is shifting a little. So, you know, when I wrote If Women Are As Rooted, what would that have been now? I was writing it in 2014. It was published in 2016. I mean, there was no way that that book got mentioned in the mainstream media at all. I mean, it, you know, fairy tales, come on. You could write that as fiction. So if I wrote fictional fairy tales, they would get good coverage. But to write about that having meaning in your life, no way. That just was not going to happen at the time. And now things have completely changed. You know, so with Hagatude, there is very much... It, it, just not a barrier anymore. That idea that you would write about maybe a little bit of spirituality as you, you know, being necessary as you go older, that you would write about myth and its importance in your life. So I think slowly, very slowly, something is shifting as more women just start to kind of come out. <laughs> and not mm. just women, there are great male writers out there too, who increasingly use myth in, in, in their writing and value myth in their writing. So yeah, something is changing. Um, I'd like to just ask you a bit, if you don't mind, about your cancer, because you were diagnosed with cancer while you were writing this book, weren't you? Yeah, it was great. It was as if, the, you know, some old woman in the sky had said, ha ha, you want to write about elderhood, you know, I'll yeah, tell you about you. elderhood. Yeah. <laughs> so, OK, thank you. <laughs> Yes. Uh, so I was diagnosed with lymphoma when I was 60, um, just uh, about 18 months ago. And, um, you know, the, the journey has this inevitable ending. We are going to die at the end of it. So we, we know what the ending is. And one of the things that bothers me and has bothered me for a long time is that another conversation that we don't have very easily in our culture is 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 about death. And I felt very strongly because of the timing and other kind of, you know, situations in my life that that journey through an aggressive form of lymphoma, which happily was very treatable, was in itself an initiation. It was an opportunity to do what I think menopause hadn't quite achieved for me. I was one of those that was going to carry on doing, 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 you know, all the way to the end. And it was a real opportunity to do that bit again where you say, OK, what matters? What matters? If I were to die at the end of this, what would I be doing with this day? What would I be doing with the rest of my life? And it was intensely clarifying it was curiously joyful. I think there is a, a funny, a funny thing about befriending death, and I don't mean that in a woo-woo way. I mean, you know, you know, in a very kind of visceral way. You have to take death by the hand and let her sit down at your table and just accept that one of these days, you know, there's going to be a, a bigger meeting. And I do think, although it sounds very cliched, and I really don't mean it to be, but words are tricky, that I found very much more joy and clarity in the everyday from having had that brush with death, as if you can only live meaningfully when you really accept 
death is an inevitable outcome and you're not constantly hung up on when it's going to happen to you. And I think if as women entering into elderhood, we can also have these conversations about death and how we come to terms with it. Not, you know, I don't mean the end of life stuff and how you actually physically die, but how you how you walk through those last decades of life knowing that, you know, that it could come at any time. So it, I, I know it sounds crazy, perhaps, but it was a gift. I wouldn't give it back. It taught me everything I needed to learn at that point. Everything has changed since then. And I feel very joyful about it all. It's really fascinating because it's the last chapter of the book. Did it make you want to go back and re-look at all the rest? Well, I wrote most of it while I was undergoing chemotherapy. Yeah. I'd only just really begun. And then, you know, we moved to Wales um, and landed in a new house from Ireland and international relocation on the first day of the first lockdown. So that, you know, that was really great too. So it, everything had been interrupted. And then when I was doing the chemotherapy, which was pretty, chemotherapy for blood cancer is pretty brutal because there is no surgery. So it's all on the chemicals. I thought, okay, I'm stopping everything else. I'm stopping everything else. And I'm just writing this book. So all of the things that I say should happen during menopause probably happened for me at that point. Everything was stripped away. And it was just like, okay, what do I actually enjoy doing? What am I doing because I feel obliged to do because I don't like to say no to people if they invite me to do something? But what do I actually want to do? And what have I got to say? And that was part of the gift of it, I think, as well. Just that intense clarification of what matters to me and what I think I'm here to do. Are you in remission now? Yeah. Yeah. It, it is treatable for most people. Um, and it would be, I guess, a year, just every year since I stopped treatment. So at two years, they kind of write you off and tell you to go and have a nice life. But yeah. Brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm just going to ask you the questions I always ask at the end now. Um, so firstly, what's your emotional age? My emotional age? Oh my goodness, I have no idea how to answer that. I think it's fairly congruent with my physical age. Sometimes I, I feel older. I, I think I felt older emotionally all my life than I actually was physically, but I think I've probably just like lightened up a bit now and probably let my physical self catch up. <laughs> give us a book recommendation. I mean, you must be able to give us millions of book recommendations, but uh, it could be one that's made a big impact on you earlier in your life? It could just be something really good that you've read recently. I would say one of the books that completely transformed my way of thinking, and particularly in relationship to the natural world and the importance of belonging to it, would have been D.H. Lawrence's The Rainbow, which I studied at school for A-level when I was 16. And I, I was completely in tune with his whole horror at the machine, you know, the industrial machine. Of course, it was in those days. There was no internet machine as well taking over the world and the old ways of being in tune with nature, which he portrayed so beautifully in that book of all of them slipping away. And that had probably the greatest impact on me, I would say, than any other novel that I've ever read. I thought that you might say The Women's Room by Marilyn French. That had a big impact as well. But, um, you know, I, I stole it from my mother. She had it when it first came out in paperback in the UK and, and read it. And yes, that was clarifying for me. But I read a lot of novels about Victorian and uh, kind of Edwardian women who were, you know, locked up in lunatic asylums yeah, by me their too. husbands yeah. and all of the rest of it. So I read lots of novels that made it very clear to me that women, you know, hadn't had a particularly good rap. But... I think that one thing to sh completely shift your perspective, something slotted into place for me with a rainbow. Uh, what advice would you give younger women? Always believe that change is not only possible but necessary. 
and and go with it. Don't try to ever put yourself in a position where you think you've arrived. You're not supposed to. Brilliant. That's food for thought, indeed. Um, Who is your old bird role model? So an older woman who's inspired you. Can it be fictional rather than real? Yeah, totally. Terry Pratchett's Granny Weatherwax. I love Terry Pratchett's witches and I propose to model my old age on that very... um, down-to-earth, slightly outspoken, grumpy, but very grounded old granite witch in in his books. Brilliant. What's your superpower? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Joy. Why is that? It's not a kind of like, you know, always look on the bright side. I don't mean that. But no matter how things get, I can always find joy in just the real basic functioning of, of life. You know, birdsong, trees, flowers, wind, what have you. It's just, it's not something I have to work at. It's just no matter how bad it gets, that just brings me right back to a sense of joy that this remarkable world is out there and we're a part of it. And lastly, how many fucks do you give? A lot about some things, a lot about the state of the world. Um, Three. (laughs) Whatever that means. Three is a good round number. Are those three aimed at anything in particular? I don't really know how to answer that, to be honest. Um, How many fucks do you give? Oh, I don't know. I think I'm one of those people who wants to give none, but actually gives a lot. Yeah, I think that's probably what I am too. So probably three is too small. But yeah, it would would be very much about the state of of, of the environment and the ways that people Mm. allow themselves to be kind of, you know, sucked into a virtual world. Here we are talking on our computers uh, rather than actually getting out and experiencing it properly. Yeah, that's that's a whole other conversation. Yes. (laughs) We've got another hour. (laughs) Thank you, Sharon. It's been really lovely to talk to you. Thank you. It's been lovely to talk to you too. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift with Sam Baker each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to support The Shift, please consider becoming a member. Find out more at steady.media forward slash The Shift. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.